0: One of the things about a retreat like this with a theme, in this case equanimity, is we tend to repeat ourselves. What are you talking about tonight? Equanimity. (laughs) Equanimity. But I think it's wonderful um, to explore this profound factor of mind from all these different angles. I know I'm learning a lot myself from these practices and... uh, the conversations that I'm having with you, the teachings that we're giving. So just to prepare you that the theme for tonight is, yet again, equanimity. Uh, And there are two main aspects to equanimity. The first is this quality of mind that's balanced, spacious, and we've been talking about that, how powerful that is. And to know that it's a mental factor It's a mental quality, mental factor of mind, that we can recognize and we can cultivate for ourselves, that we can experience through our practice and that we can bring to our lives. It's doable. So this quality of spaciousness, of balance, we can, as I said, cultivate through practice, but it's invited through lots of other different experiences too, here on retreat as well as in our lives just the experience of nature, you know, walking out here in this beautiful view that we have in either direction, Um, or going out at night and looking up at the sky, and just contemplating infinity. I think everyone should contemplate infinity at least once a day. (laughs) It like stretches the mind, right? It stops the mind. And in the same way, contemplating the vastness of time. Both these contemplations really help to put things in perspective as we get tangled up in a knot about something, step outside, look up at the night sky, think about the eons of time that have gone before and will continue to go ahead whether we survive as a species on this planet or not, time in some form will continue. And the opposite of that balance, as we've been talking about, the far enemy, is all the forms of obsession, obsessed with objects, obsessed with time, it's the stress that comes from that, the the selfing, the I, me, and mining. You know, everything is about me. What about me? What does it say about me? What do they think about me? What do I think about me? I often tell this joke, it's a little corny, but um, it's a... Typical first date where one of the, peop- one of the part- people is going on and on and on about themselves and their likes and dislikes and story and everything. And after a while, I say, well, enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> but we're like that, right, about ourselves and our views and opinions. So precious, so true, so real. And when we're caught in our reactivity, this is the opposite. I had, again, just a small story um, about equanimity and lack thereof uh, just, just days before this retreat. So one day, a few days before the retreat, I was in my bathroom where there's a door to the outside. And on the base, just a bit like one of these doors, and on the base of that door was a giant spider, like you know, when you see a spider, you go, that's a big spider. You know, really big, hefty looking spider. But he was right on the door. So, with great equanimity, I opened the door, gave it a little like, and he just dropped off and ran away. We're both happy, right? Spider is happier outside. I'm happier. He, she is outside. It. Equanimity. A day later, I'm sitting on my couch. And I noticed a little tickle on my arm. <laughs> and I look down. There's a spider. It's nowhere near as big as that spider, but it's not an insignificant spider. You know, it's not one of those wispy ones that you're like, oh, it's just a... It's one of those ones that look like it means business, right? So what do I do? No, who said that? <laughs> I screamed! <laughs> But what happens then? I jump up. The spider's not on my arm. Where is it? You know, is it down my shirt? Is it back on the couch? So when I sit down, it'll come up again. Luckily, I stand up and I'm like, ah! <laughs> and I'm normally not squeamish, but spiders, you know. Um, but luckily, I see it on the floor, but it's going under the couch. So it's obviously still inside. Such a different reaction. Why? Because it's me, right? I don't think that spider was going to do me any harm. I come from Australia. We have deadly spiders. But I don't think this, this was not one of them. I don't even know whether it would have bitten me. But just that reactivity. Both of us are unhappy, right? The spider's unhappy. I'm unhappy. Because it's me. It's my arm. If I had been able to go, oh, spider, and carry my arm outside, you know, same as a spider on the door. We'd both be happy. But we see how instantly the mind leads him to react when it's identified with self, when it's fixated on this. So that's the mental factor of equanimity, present or absent. But then the other really important um, understanding of equanimity is aligning with the Dhamma the way things are. This word dhamma, I think we, I explained it a bit, our first night together. It means the law, the truth, the teachings of the Buddha, but really reality, the way things are. And in this context, it means kama. Kama is reality. This is the way things are. This is how things are right now. So these two uh, aspects that are important in developing acronyms, And they're brought together in this beautiful saying by Padma Sambhava, who was a great Tibetan sage. He said, my view is as vast as the sky. And by his view, he means his understanding of the nature of mind. My view is as vast as the sky, but my actions and respect for the laws of karma are as fine as a grain of sampa flower, Fine as a grain of flour. My view is as vast as the sky. Yet my attention to the law of karma, law of cause and effect, as fine as fine can be. We need to bring both of these understandings, develop both of these to fully develop equanimity. So tonight I'm going to be talking about karma, understanding karma. And just start by a little um, language. Um, most of us are used to hearing Sanskrit when, in Buddhist teachings, in yoga teachings. And there, the words often have an R in them. And I'm Australian, so I have to practice this. Dharma. <laughs> Dharma. And In Pali, which is a language the Buddha's teachings were written down in, and this tradition is based on, uh, it's Dhamma, with a double M. And it's the same with Karma. Karma is Sanskrit. Kamma. Is Pali. So I'll tend to use the Pali because that's what I'm more familiar with. But just so you know, they're the same word. And this teaching is one of the most misunderstood in uh, Buddhism. It became kind of widely used in the 60s through the hippies and the Beatles. You know, instant karma is going to get you. And it was kind of like a retribution, right? You get what you deserve. Instant karma. You get that payback. And I hear people even now really misunderstanding and misusing uh, these teachings. When they say something to someone who's got some illness like cancer or whatever, oh, you got cancer because you needed to learn something about This is not how this teaching should be understood. This is not true. Um, Or you did something bad, therefore you're having this suffering now. I was speaking to someone today, and she gave me this great phrase. That's uh, metaphysical malpractice." <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, because it's true, this is not what is helpful, not what is true, about these teachings. Kama simply means action, literally, action, movement, of body, speech and mind. Vipaka kama is a different term for the results or the fruits of action. So most of the time when people are talking about kama, they're talking about vipaka kama, the fruit of action. But here tonight, I'm going to be talking more about actions. And so the equanimity phrase, the traditional phrase, which we've introduced, but we haven't emphasized so much because it is challenging for people, is all beings are the owners of their kama. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions not upon my wishes for them. And I teach a lot of meta-retreats, intensive meta-retreats, a week or 10 days long, where we spend all that time wishing well to ourselves and other beings. And we teach all of the other brahmaviharas, Viharas, and we get to equanimity and offer this phrase, and there's always someone, and probably many people, who go, what do you mean? Your happiness and unhappiness not upon, depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes. I've just spent a week wishing well, and you're telling me it doesn't mean anything? Well, in some way it doesn't, because what it's pointing to is what's true about Metta and all the Brahma-Viharas. We're not looking to influence someone else's experience. We're looking to transform our minds and hearts and their capacity for well-wishing, or compassion, or joy, or equanimity. This is really important to get. M- even more so for the equanimity practice, because as we've been emphasizing, not sending in sending equanimity. In metta, we really are sending for when we're doing it for other people. We're sending these well-wishes, but to transform our own minds and hearts. In karma, we're really not sending anything. We're understanding for ourselves this great law of kama. The Buddha said about kama, it was one of the four imponderables. He said, if you try to figure it out, it will drive you crazy. So I say that quite early up front. Don't try to figure it out. And don't, if this is new for you, don't even try to figure out what I'm saying tonight. These teachings are broad and deep. And I can only touch the surface of them as best I am able to convey them. So between that se- series of po- po- potentials for misunderstanding, just you know, take in what seems interesting or useful and just let the rest go. But I do think you need to know that this teaching is central to what the Buddha taught. He taught a, talked about it over and over again hundreds of suttas, either directly about or referencing this teaching in different forms. And it's woven into, again, many of his central teachings. All of his teachings on sila or ethical conduct, the um, precepts that we've taken a number of times, this is all underpinned by understanding the law of karma. Even teachings that don't seem like they would fit, like anatta, the teaching of not-self, that there's nothing solid, enduring, permanent here. It's like, well, how do those two go together? Goes together with the law of karma, the teaching on karma. In Buddhist cosmology, the Buddha talked constantly about rebirth and different realms. I think I've mentioned at different times the different realms. This was just a given for him. He had conversations with devas and brahmas and, and tried to help people in hell realms. Um, So it was a given. It's central to the great teaching on dependent origination or codependent arising. This brilliant teaching with the 12 links um, that at its heart is about the law of cause and effect, conditionality, which is again what karma is about. At the time of the Buddha, this, this... Um, understanding of karma was prevalent or an understanding of karma was prevalent and it also meant action but there were three main ways people understood it Um, and the first one was that all present experience was the direct result in a kind of linear way of past actions and it was very deterministic if your father was a potter you became a potter if you were born into a certain caste that defined who you were it defined gender roles and any any sense of identification or possibility in a life it was very fatalistic and there was no room for free will in that view it was you know very this is the way things are in a passive very passive sense the second view was that everything we experienced was kind of the creation of the gods, and we were just at the whim and the mercy of these godlike figures, more than one god. And then the last view was there were no prior causes. It was just all random. There was no way to understand why things were happening. The Buddha rejected all of these, and he radically changed the understanding of karma being action by saying it was intentional action. That is what shapes us, and the world. Intentional action. And just a simple example of this is if, again, you know, with that spider you smash it, which I would never do. Um, But if you, you know, swat a mosquito or something's there and you kill it, that has a karmic repercussion. If you're walking at night and you step on an ant and you don't see it, you don't even know you've done it, there isn't karma resultant because of that. So it's a The intentionality of the act is really important. And the Buddha said this is a natural law. It wasn't dogma or, you know, believe this, I've made this up and I think this works. He was saying he was discovering it like a law of gravity or physics, that this is the way the universe worked. So it wasn't personal. It wasn't determined by gods. It was just this natural law. And even though, as I said, the, the teaching talks in the text will talk a lot about rebirth. Um, as Manindra would say about rebirth, you don't have to believe it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. Um, but we can see in this very life, this unfolding of birth and rebirth, birth and death. You know, all of the identities we take up, even in a day, of a tired person or a awake person, of a good meditator or a bad meditator. I've got this or I don't have a clue what's going on here. And we can take those up, right? And and live out of them as though they're solid and in, lasting. Identities as being a mother or a daughter, being sick or strong and healthy. Um, and once we create that identity, we look for things that feed it, right? That reflect that back to us and we reject the things that don't even if it's a painful birth we do that so we can see how we do that all the time we're being born and dying in these identities we take up some are more enduring again being a mother or daughter or a father or a brother or whatever can last much longer but others can be the product of a day or even an hour but we can still solidify them. And out of those identities, certain mind states get developed, get strengthened. The Buddha said, that which the mind frequently thinks, dwells and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. I mean, the Buddha was a technician of the mind. It seems obvious, perhaps we all know that, but that which one frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of the mind. If you dwell on something, a hurt, an injustice, uh, an identity, a limitation, a sense of self-hatred, your mind is shaped by that. We'll feed and uh, take in information about that. If we act out of anger once, we're more likely to act out of anger again. A habit gets created. If we act out of anger, it's likely we'll receive anger back which creates more reaction of anger. So it feeds itself. But also the same of kindness or compassion. We act out of kindness, it's likely that we'll receive kindness in return. Not always, again, these are not saying likely, but we can see how we get shaped by our actions. What's really important to get about karma is, as I think I already said, it's not a teaching about blame or deserving to suffer. This is not how the suttas relate to it. It's really a pointing to the fact that everything arises out of causes and conditions. Everything is processed, even our sense of self, that we think is so solid and permanent, Again, I could do a whole teaching about that. I have to stop because I've got enough to say about the rest of it. Um, But even that's a conditioned thing that arises and passes if we look closely enough. So this great teaching on dependent origination, um, it's 12 links that describe the process we go through over and over again, starting with ignorance to getting lost in craving and out of the craving, again, creating this sense of self. With every self, there's a death. There's old age sickness and death, which is a shorthand for suffering. And unless something changes, we get caught in that cycle. It's called the wheel of samsara, the cyclic wheel of samsara. And there's not just one wheel going. I, I liken it, you can't do it anymore with a digital watch, but those old analog with the, with the cogs, all the different shapes, all, and some clicking fast and some clicking slow, multiply a million times, this process going over and over again. So it's a description of how we suffer, but with all of the Buddha's teachings, every teaching about suffering is also a teaching about freedom. If we understand how these links work, anywhere along that link before we get to suffering, we can change that cycle and even completely stop, uproot that particular cycle of suffering. So even in that you know, tendency, there's a, the process is... Um, it's said that the main place we can interrupt the cycle is at this point of contact where something arises... Again, in Buddhism, contact is at any of the six sense doors, so physical, uh, touch, sight, sound, smell, taste, and the mind, hearing, what he- and the mind, so emotions. Um, if When something arises, oh, every time something arises, it has what we call vedana, a feeling tone associated with it, a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral a very simple way of understanding what's happening. If we're able to be with what's happening, connect to what's happening, be mindful, whatever it is, large or small, in meditation outside, and just stay there, suffering doesn't come. But most of us, if something's pleasant, what do we do? Grasp. If Something's unpleasant, what do we do? Push away. If something's neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we get lost, we space out, we disconnect, or we look for the next hit. We look for the next thing because that wasn't interesting enough. Once we're in that reactivity, Buddha's term is tanha or craving, and it includes those craving and aversion and delusion. From there, we go to clinging. I want to hold on to this. I want to. And even in the pushing away of something, to push something away, what do we have to do? We have to pick it up. We have to pick it up. So um, we go, it, it goes to further and further solidification until we become the person who owns, who wants, who has, who is, and now it's mine. And you can't have it. Mm-hmm. There's not enough to go around. Or Whatever relationship we have to that particular thing, or it's mine, look at mine. Look what I have, you know, whatever it is that we do with that. But eventually, I don't actually like this thing that much, but um, (laughs) it becomes not mine, right? At some point, this will break. I'll leave Spirit Rock. It's not mine anymore. There's loss. Every birth, every taking up of experience has a death. With death is suffering. If we can just stay with that contact and the knowing of that and the Vedana of the knowing of that, that whole cycle doesn't have to um, move along. But as I said, anywhere on that sequence, we can shift and change. So, you know, I know that's a very condensed version of a deep and profound teaching, but just to give a sense of. Again, with mindfulness, knowing what's happening, these shifts are possible. Because we start to see and understand that our lives are shaped by our choices. Again, it might seem obvious, but most of us don't recognize that. You might recognize the larger choices, what school you perhaps had the good fortune to choose to go to, partners you might choose to be with but how much of those choices are shaped by our unconscious forces and how many choices do we make during the day that we're not aware of, that are unconscious, subconscious, or we're just acting out of our habits, our conditioning, our neuroses, and particularly our fears, our sense of inadequacy, our limitation, sense of limitation. We're acting out of that all the time. Most of us don't realize it. This is where these teachings become profound and radical. Know this in the, from the grossest level, which most of us are kind of aware of, but we're aware of what's shaping those grosser levels. We start to track, as karma has been saying, under the radar, what's happening. This is so important. When we add mindfulness and wisdom to this mix, to understanding of karma, everything changes. We're not just the helpless victims repeating our old habit patterns and sort of looking around going, How did I get here again? You know, why did I end up in this kind of relationship? Why am I having this same argument with my sister? We start to understand. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's this great scholar and monk, I think I mentioned him before, lives down in San Diego. He says this about kama: Instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focused on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing in every moment. So now. Who you are, what you came from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. Even though the past may account for many of the inequalities we see in life, our measure as human beings is not the hand we've been dealt, for that hand can change at any moment. We take our own measure by how well we play the hand we've got. If you're suffering, you try not to continue the unskillful mental habits that would keep that particular karmic feedback going. If you see that other people are suffering and you're in a position to help, you focus not on their karmic past, but on your karmic opportunity in the present. Someday you may find yourself in the same predicament that they are in now, and so here's your opportunity to act in a way you'd like them to act towards you when that day came. Karma is a lot about the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But here, the intention is so key. Intention is key. Uh, And so we're set, you know, as I said earlier, that karma is shaped by intention. But even around this, I've started to have more subtlety of understanding. Because we need to be sensitive to impact as well as intention. And this particularly comes into play when we're um, engaged in any kind of equity and diversity growth work. As we live and work and practice in more diverse communities with people from different cultural backgrounds or races or um, economic classes, sexual orientation, gender identification, we can have impact out of good intentions and we really need to recognize that, that 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 can be suffering caused even though our intentions are good and even though it's you know we can um, recognize and appreciate our good intentions we have to acknowledge if there's been impact when it's pointed out to us this is how we learn and grow it needs humility and sensitivity in this field of action, and we start to really get that we cannot know someone else's experience, especially someone that has a different past conditioning than we do. We don't always know what's best or right. We think we do, but we don't. The way we've always done things, it's always worked in the past isn't necessarily what works now, or what's best for this community, the way it's developing. So this is a huge area of learning, has been for me, and uh, for Spirit Rock, for all of the communities we're involved in, to see how much suffering can come out of good intentions, but um, painful impact. So really an important thing that we can do uh, to learn about this. I just found this uh, stanza by Goethe, the German poet. So when did he live, 1800s or something? Speaks to this exactly. He said, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an inst- instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de escalated, whether a person is humanized or dehumanized. If we treat people as they are, we make them worse. If we treat people as they can be, we help them become what they are capable of becoming. So some of the language perhaps isn't quite what we would say today, but that sense of how we shift and shape our reality through our intentions. And so our practice is to make our intentions conscious. This is how we change the comic stream. It's not fatalistic. It's not deterministic. We have free will. I saw that so clearly for myself when I discovered the Dhamma. I was in my mid twenties in Asia. Did my first retreat in India with S.N. Goenka. So he was my first teacher. I have. Profound respect and appreciation for what he has done to bring Dhamma to the world, particularly to the West. I think I might have mentioned this retreat. It was horrible you know <laughs> i didn 't have a clue what was going on. Um, I could tell the whole story of how I got there. It was in India. It was in a new retreat center wasn 't Igatpuri where they had a nice retreat center. It was basically a camp. And the hot water was, a man would come around every morning and light a little fire under a pot of water and, you know, all other kinds of things. But I went with, you know, a little backpack. I didn't have a nice cushion and zabuton. I had a towel. A towel, I think, is all I had. I think I could. they had a cushion, a pillow from the bed I could bring. That was it, on a concrete floor. But something landed in me as being the truth. And from that retreat, I was lucky. I was in India. All I had was a backpack. Every major decision I made in my life from that point on was how do I stay connected to the Dhamma? How do I do another retreat? How do I be around Dhamma people? So I did you know two other retreats in quick succession in the next couple of months. And then when I ended up uh, I left I was in Asia for about a year and a half. Went to England. First thing I did was um, I d- did a retreat with Christopher Titmus in Bodgeyer and just got so inspired by him. I met Joseph Goldstein and James Barras and Jack Kornfield in Bodgaya that year, got inspired by them. Um, when I went to England, I went on a retreat at Christopher and Christina Feldman's retreat center in uh, England. And really wanted to stay there. It's like, ah, oh, this is heaven. The whole story about that. Didn't get to stay. Um, I wanted to manage it, to work there so I could actually stay and be in that environment. But as I went on my travels, I met up with my boyfriend again. Remember the one who survived the viral <laughs> meningitis? He survived. Um, and we met up again. And again, he wanted to travel far afield. He wanted to go, you know, like to Eastern Europe, to... We traveled through you know, Switzerland and Germany and places like that. went, no, further. I got this letter as we were about to make that journey further east that said, you can come now and be a retreat manager. And I just said goodbye. I did. I said, the relationship wasn't great. But, you know, we'd been together many years and I'd actually left him to go to Asia and then... He, I don't need to go to whole story. <laughs> But I did. I said, goodbye. And he said, you don't want to see Italy? You don't want to see Czechos?" I said, no, I want to go to be in this retreat center. And from managing that retreat center, um, I met my future husband, Guy Armstrong. He was a yogi there. We went, didn't get in relationship with him, but I met him there. And from those connections, I got invited to help start a meditation community, Sharpham Community in this beautiful area of England. And Guy and I, my husband, Future, were the first two people to move in. And from that, and actually, even before I, as I was making this decision to join this community, I was traveling with another woman friend, and she wanted to go to Ireland. And we were already in Wales, staying with some people, and she's, let's go to Ireland. And I, I got, again, this opportunity to go, and I said, no, bye. You know, and again, I felt bad she had to go on her own. But it was so important to me to be in a Dharma community. And my whole life was shaped by, has been shaped to this day by those decisions. So best decisions I ever made, power of conscious intention of what was valuable, what was important. I said uh, the other night, I paraphrased what the Buddha said about it's possible to shift this karmic stream. Here is what he literally said. Abandon what is unskillful, monks. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. And one thing you'll know if you're new to the suttas, there's a lot of repetition, so you get it. So, if it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and suffering, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and happiness, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Develop what is skillful, monks. It's possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. If this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and suffering, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and happiness, I say to you, develop what is skillful. He's saying we can do it. It's possible. So What is skillful? What does the Buddha say leads to well-being, leads to shifting the karmic stream in a positive direction? I'm going to skip one. There's a sutta in the Nikaya, Middle-length Discourses where he talks about the roots of the unskillful. Taking life is unskillful. Taking what is not given is unskillful. Sexual misconduct, lying, abusive speech, divisive tale-bearing, idle chatter is unskillful. Covetousness, all of these he's repeating. I'm, there's parentheses here, so... No, ellipses, that's what ellipses. Covetousness, malevolence, wrong views are unskillful. These things are termed unskillful. And what are the roots of the unskillful, meaning what causes them? Greed aversion delusion these are the calaces the torments of mind these are the roots what is the skillful the opposite abstaining from taking life is skillful abstaining from taking what is not given abstaining from sexual misconduct from lying from abusive speech these things are termed skillful and uh, One of the things I've understood is that in the Pali language, these texts written down in, when they use the negative, the abstaining from, um, included in that is the positive. So abstaining from taking what is not given is not stealing. And that implies generosity. Um, What are the roots of skillful? Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, non-greed is also generosity. Non-aversion is metta. Non-delusion is wisdom. These are the roots of the skillful. So this might just seem like a list of do's and don'ts, sort of like 10 commandments, but they're not. They're a prescription for happiness. They're the Buddhist path to happiness and well-being. The Buddha lays it out for us. And we start to see that it's possible to make choices that bring more happiness into our lives and others' lives. Actually, I'm just reminded on that first retreat, the insight that I had that was so revolutionary for me, you know, this truth that I saw, or this possibility really, was you mean to say it's possible that I can live in a way? that I don't cause suffering to myself and to others, I did not fathom that that was possible. I thought we just went around banging into each other and sometimes it worked, but most of the time it was just messy. And to hear someone say that something else was possible, that was radical, and I certainly couldn't manifest it right then. But to even know it was possible was revolutionary to me. Kamala shared this poem uh, to, with me was just appropriate for this talk. It's, called, it's by William Stafford, and it's called The Little Ways That Encourage Good Fortune. And you could say good karma. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have the right things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic but you will not be wise. If you have things right in your life, but do not know why, you are just lucky. And you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune, good karma, we could say. Unless there's knowledge and wisdom of how these processes work, we will not continue to develop. We're just lucky. Some people are lucky, they're privileged, whatever. We want to be wise and know how this works. So to know why, to know how, that's the job of mindfulness. That's what mindfulness can do. The samasati that I spoke about the other night, wise or onward leading mindfulness, that as I said, it's natural functioning is to develop and deepen and nurture the wholesome and let go, abandon, diminish the unwholesome just through the clear seeing, just through the wisdom that it brings. And it's that one of the paradoxes of Buddhism is that we turn towards suffering to understand it and to find freedom. uh, Freedom and happiness isn't to be found by running as fast as we can. And another practice or another teaching That's an invitation to develop equanimity and a deep understanding of karma Is what's known as the five subjects for daily recollection or frequent recollection. And these five are chanted daily in monasteries all over the world. Many people take them up as daily practices because they're so powerful. And these five subjects are, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that is beloved and pleasing to me, that I will be separated from. And lastly, the karma reflection. I am the owner of my karma. My happiness and unhappiness depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes. They're powerful reflections, and they're true. The first three are called the heavenly messengers. Their fourth one is a monastic, but the first three are what turned the Buddha in, onto his search for awakening. He said, how can people go around moving the check de- deck chairs on the Titanic? He didn't say that, obviously, but <laughs> similar analogy, knowing that they're going to get old and die. They're going to get sick. How can you live knowing without facing that, without... And he wanted to find freedom from that. He was so afraid of that. He wanted to find freedom for that, from that. And he realized the only way was to turn towards it. What can be taken away when everything is let go of? When old age, sickness, and death come and you've really contemplated this as a truth, it's not wrong. It's not a surprise. There's this great quote from Ajahn Chah about the glass. Many of you may know it. He says, you say, don't break my glass. Can you prevent something that's breakable from breaking? If it doesn't break now, it will break later on. If you don't break it, someone else will. If someone else doesn't break it, one of the chickens will. The Buddha says to accept this. He penetrated the truth of these things, seeing that this glass is already broken. Whenever you use this glass, you should reflect that it's already broken. Do you understand this? The Buddha's understanding was like this. He saw the broken glass within the unbroken one. Whenever its time is up, it will break. Develop this kind of understanding. Use this glass. Look after it until when one day, I won't do this, it slips out of your hand, smash no problem. Why is there no problem? Because you saw its brokenness before it broke. And he's talking about a glass, we could apply that to everything. Everything we hold dear and precious, ourselves. Larry Rosenberg, uh, a great teacher at um, in Cambridge, has written a book on these reflections called Living in the Light of Death. I highly recommend it. Um, so, It's actually the turning towards and the bringing mindfulness to that is so powerful. Mark Epstein in the uh, Trauma of Everyday Life says, if we don't understand what's happening to us, it leads to trauma. He said, we are all traumatized by life, by its unpredictability, its randomness, its lack of regard for our feelings and loss, the losses it brings. But the traumas of everyday life, if they do not destroy us, become bearable, even illuminating, if we learn to relate to them differently. This is what mindfulness, wisdom, and equanimity can do. Turn to these truths. This is the way things are. This is the law, the nature. And bring that spacious, balanced mind to that. So, we started our week by taking the refuges. It seems a long time ago now the refuges of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And we've sat this week in this hall with these three great archetypes around us. This is Prajnaparamita. She's the mother of all Buddhas, the emanation of wisdom. At the back of the hall, we have Kuan Yin, who's the goddess of compassion in her posture of royal ease. She hears the 10,000 cries of joy and sorrow of the world. Her heart remains in balance, but she's always ready to act. And then here we have the Buddha. He holds both the wisdom and compassion and the manifestation of that is the equanimity of the Buddha. These are the archetypal uh, possibilities for us that are manifesting in these rupas, we call them, forms. We're accessing that through these practices of the Brahma-viharas. They're archetypes, as we call them, the divine emotions, the highest emotions we as human beings the most divine emotions we can manifest, and these brahmaviharas are the appropriate response to any situation we might find ourselves in. So, why so valuable to um, keep reflecting and cultivating them? So, just to reiterate about equanimity: equanimity is not static. It's when we're not sending it out. We're training our own hearts and minds towards spaciousness and balance and to understanding the way things are. The Dhamma, the karma of how things are. This law of cause and effect. And the fact that we can shape our karma through bringing wise consciousness to our experience. And that equanimity is not cold or unfeeling. Even as we understand this law of karma, it's not cold or unfeeling. It's sort of like a grandmother's love. You know, a parent's love is really intertwined and enmeshed and and worried. And the grandmother-grandfather archetype, oh, I know what that's like. Yep, they're just going through that phase. Uh, You know, there's a balance in that, even as there's warmth and I, th- I said this in my other talk, but it's so important to get, equanimity is the natural state of the mind. It's the natural state of the mind. Everything else is an addition. We might think, maybe for everyone else, not me, because their narrator, the commenter, is so persistent, so alive, so... Eh-eh-eh-eh-eh. Our views and opinions, our ideas are so with us but all of you have had a taste of the mind at rest and just like we see when we take you know if we emptied this room of everything what's left yes the floor the walls are sealed but space right space the tibetans say about the mind it's intrinsically empty naturally radiant ceaselessly responsive that's compassion acting out of this Wise empty mind. It's not unfeeling. It's compassionate. Once we know this for ourselves, it changes how we relate to our mind, and it—it's the mind is then not a problem, but has enormous potential, because we can shape our calm stream by bringing mindfulness and careful attention to this moment. This is not a big, pro- oh my god, now I have to, you know, this moment, this moment, just as it is. And we see we can train the mind and heart. These Brahmavihara practices show us through inclining the mind, filling the mind with metta or compassion or inclining it to equanimity over and over again, this is how things are right now. May I accept that this is how things are right now. We can shape our karmic mindstream, And that's the important thing. Whatever's gone before, we don't need to figure out or judge or blame ourselves. Not helpful. As, as Gil Fronsdale says about karma, we're not to blame, but we're responsible. Responsible as in shepherding now this life force, this life stream and also how we relate to others, to the world. We're not separate. So making what was unconscious conscious, bringing mindfulness into each moment as best we can. And as I always say, we have to do this practice with equanimity. Do this practice with compassion. I love when Kamala said something like, this is the best I can do right now. I am out of balance. But we recognize that, bring compassion to that. This is the best I can do right now. I wanna finish again with the words of Ajahn Chah because he spoke so beautifully about the mind in a a simple and direct way. This is from A Taste of Freedom. In truth, there is nothing really wrong with the mind. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. That's what he says. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrows. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. That gladness or sadness that gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things, it forgets itself, then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful, just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If the wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to these sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So let's let the words settle into silence and the still and natural mind. Our practice is simply to see the original mind, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So again, thank you for your attention. Time for some walking perhaps some contemplation of infinity, the nighttime sky, vastness of time, whatever works to get you back here at nine o'clock for the last sit with chanting. Thank you for listening.